Welcome to GEMCAST, the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, where we discuss important topics in the care of older patients in the emergency department. I'm your host, Christina Shenby. GEMCAST is produced with the Geriatric ED Collaborative. You can find more episodes on any podcasting app, and you can find the show notes on the resources page of gedcollaborative.com. Hello, welcome back to GEMCAST. I'm excited to be here with two phenomenal guests. Danya Kuja, who has been on GEMCAST before, and she's an emergency medicine physician who loves elderly patients and is very active in the geriatric EM community. And then a new guest today, Deborah Eagles, who is an associate professor of emergency medicine at the University of Ottawa and does research in delirium. And today we're going to be talking about a paper that they co-wrote called Acute Brain Failure in Older Emergency Department Patients. And this came out just in 2021 in the emergency medicine clinics. And I love this because it gives a different slant to delirium. We've talked about delirium before on GEMCAST, but now we're going to think about it a little bit differently as acute brain failure. So Danya and Deborah, welcome to GEMCAST. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, delirium is something that we've talked about before on GEMCAST, but we've never used this phrase of acute brain failure. So maybe you could start us off talking about what you mean by acute brain failure and why we're talking about it here. So I think we use the term acute brain failure because it grabs the attention a little bit more, but ultimately we are talking about delirium. And it's so important for clinicians to understand this medical emergency because it is common and it's associated with significant patient morbidity and mortality. So in fact, one in 10 patients that are 65 years and older in the emergency department have delirium. And these patients are more likely to be admitted to hospital, admitted to ICU, have longer hospital length of stay, be discharged to a higher level of care and have increased risk of death. Not only that, it's extremely psychologically distressful for both the patients and their families. And there's mounting evidence that it results in adverse long-term outcomes. Delirium has been shown to persist up to 12 months in up to 50% of patients and is known to be a risk factor for subsequent cognitive and functional decline. Finally, the financial impact of delirium is huge. A recent systematic review estimated that the inpatient cost alone to be more than $6.6 billion annually in the U.S. So from all of the stuff that Deb talked about, we can see how delirium is such a horrible, horrible thing with a lot of downstream effects. And I think that maybe if we call it acute brain failure a little more consistently, people will start taking it more seriously and actually start looking for it and treating it and addressing it in the way it deserves. You're right. You know, Danya, a lot of times delirium seems like this nebulous thing. Like, what is it? How do we define it? We sometimes get a sense of, oh, this patient's delirious, or maybe this patient's septic. That's why they're delirious, or maybe they're confused. And so it seems very nebulous and therefore easier to kind of compartmentalize away from our thought process. Whereas if you say acute brain failure, well, that uh, connotes a sense of urgency. So why don't we start first defining what exactly is delirium? Well, delirium is a psychiatric diagnosis classified by the American Psychiatric Association as a minor neurocognitive disorder. Now, most of us know from med school, sort of the key diagnostic criteria, and there are five of them. 
So there needs to be a disturbance in attention and awareness. And that's normally characterized by a reduced ability to direct or focus your attention onto a conversation or your environment. The second criteria is that this change typically occurs over a short period of time, and it does fluctuate throughout the day. And finally, in addition to disturbances in attention and awareness, we should see other disturbances in cognition, such as memory deficits, disorientation. Oftentimes, there may be hallucinations that, you know, patients picking in the air, that sort of thing. The fourth criteria is that it cannot be better explained by another pre-existing condition. And finally, that there's evidence that the disturbance is a direct physiological consequence of another medical condition. That's interesting because in reconciling the two things you said, first of all, it has to develop over a short period of time, but then as you mentioned earlier, it can persist up to 12 months in up to half of the patients. So when we see the patient, for example, maybe on a second or third visit after their delirium development, it may be that they've had it for some time, but the actual initial onset was over a short period of time. So now let's think about it from a physiological standpoint. Why does delirium happen? So if we think about it like any other organ failure, so for example, like a heart failure patient, it's going to make so much more sense. You have a predisposed organ, in this case, the brain that lacks reserve, and then it's faced with an acute insult. And that's when they present with their acute brain failure episode. So for example, your patient has underlying dementia. They are much older, they have a premorbid functional impairment, a visual or hearing impairment, an underlying psychiatric illness or an old stroke. Any of these things can make their brain have less reserve. And then they are faced with that precipitating insult, the UTI, the pneumonia, the anticholinergic, the metabolic disturbance, the dehydration, the pain, the constipation. And that's when they present with that acute brain failure story. And it's important to remember that in a lot of these cases, it's often multifactorial. So it's not just the one cause. It's the dehydrated, constipated, in pain with a little bit of hyperglycemia that pushes the person into that acute failure. And it may be delayed by, you know, like 24 hours or more. So it doesn't necessarily have to happen right at that exact moment. So we definitely need to think a little bit more about what these insults are. That makes so much sense to think about in terms of acute on chronic, just like when you have chronic kidney failure and then you have an insult, you're more likely to develop a worse acute on chronic renal failure. Or if you have chronic compensated heart failure, and then you have an insult or a change in your medication or couldn't get your medications, then you decompensate. That makes a lot of sense and puts it into perspective similar to other organs. The other term that you made me think of is this concept of homeostenosis, which is the idea that we have some capability to flex and extend or adapt our physiology. And as we get older, that ability to adapt or compensate becomes narrower. You can think of it as stenosing or their ability to do homeostasis narrows. So this term homeostenosis kind of gets at that. So let's say we have a patient coming into the ED how would we diagnose them with delirium? So we need to remember that we are not as good as we think we are, unfortunately. We're not just gonna look at someone and be like, oh my gosh, they have delirium. We are so good at this, we just sense it. We actually miss it at least half the time, if not more. This was one of the more forgiving studies that said 50%. And I was like, yeah, let me stick with that. Sounds better than 80%. And 
basically the answer here is that we have to have a system and we have to be very serious about this. And we have to cast the white net by considering it in older adults and screen for it in patients we think are high risk at least, and try to figure out, do these people have delirium? So the bottom line is we're not good at diagnosing it if we rely just on our gestalt or just on our sense of, oh, I think they might be delirious. So we need to screen for it. So how do we screen for it? That's a great question. Currently there is lots of guidelines that support screening, but there's no evidence to guide exactly who should we be screening. So should it be all older adults or only those at higher risk of delirium? And as mentioned earlier um, with Dania, patients with underlying cognitive impairment, sensory deficits, or previous history of delirium are at higher risk. And so at the very minimum, you want to be screening these high risk patients. And what we do know is that if you don't screen, you are not likely to diagnose it. So just choose a screening tool and do it. There's lots of screening tools to choose from. Um, some of them are ultra brief, such as the Richmond Agitation and Sedation Scale or month of the year backwards tests. Those take literally seconds to use and they have a fairly good sensitivity for delirium. There are some slightly longer tests such as the 4AT and the delirium triage screen. The delirium triage screen in particular is highly sensitive and takes less than 20 seconds to administer and doesn't require the use of additional instruments. So it is advocated by multiple guidelines. It's really quite simple to use. All you need to do is evaluate the level of consciousness of your patient and ask them to spell the word lunch backwards. A normal level of consciousness and one or few spelling error rules out delirium and no further testing is necessary. And that's it, you're done. If they do screen positive though, a diagnostic test to rule in delirium is required, but it's that quick and easy. I absolutely agree with Deb and her love for the delirium triage screen. It takes 20 seconds. So I think that we should just be a little bit more vigilant about learning what it is and doing it more often in our patients. So that gives us a good quick screening tool, delirium triage screen. And then Deb, you mentioned that we have to then confirm it. So the DTS is sensitive, but not specific. How do we then move on to being more specific? So one of the more highly specific tests that we tend to be more familiar with is the BCAM or the brief confusion assessment method. Um, we basically just go down the list of the DSM criteria that Deb talked about, and that would be the BCAM. So number one, we ask ourselves, are they altered? Do they have altered mental status or is it fluctuating? And if it's yes, then we ask ourselves the second question, do they have inattention, which is one of the most important features of delirium. So for example, that's where the, you know, naming months backwards or whatever, which we probably have already done in the delirium trash screen where they would spell backwards. So if they have more than one error, then we ask ourselves, well, okay, do they have an altered level of consciousness? Something like the Richmond agitation sedation scale would be helpful here, where we'd look at them and say, okay, well, are you hypoactive or hyperactive? And then if they are altered, then we're good. Now we know that they have delirium. They have the altered mental status, fluctuating inattention and altered level of consciousness. Well, if their level of consciousness is not altered, then the other feature that could kind of take its place would be disorganized thinking. For example, not figuring out if one pound weighs more than two pounds or asking questions like, well, will a stone float on water? Or just even noticing a pattern of disorganized thinking during the conversation. And if there are any errors in that or any issues with the disorganized thinking, then that would score you positive for the BCAM and the patient would be diagnosed with delirium. 
So there are a couple of helpful hints that we can talk about. I think one of the most important thing in determining altered mental status is really understanding the patient's baseline. And I cannot emphasize this enough. Very few people, there are some, but very few people come in and say, oh yeah, I've been more confused. Oftentimes um, they're sent in from either family members or a facility. And it really is getting that collateral history to understand what their baseline is so that we can say, yes, this is a change from their baseline. It's particularly you know, difficult in patients that come in with a history of dementia if we do, because the spectrum of dementia can be so large, we don't really know where they are on that spectrum. And the confusion that we see in front of us, is that new or is that pre-existing? And so collateral history is really the key. Now, oftentimes, as we all know, when they emerge, we can't get that collateral history. It's the middle of the night. No one's picking up the phone. Um, and so if you can't get collateral history, you have to assume that this is new altered mental status and they have to score positive on that feature. For inattention, one of the, one of the key things is that if they perseverate uh, on a month or it takes them longer than 15 seconds to come up with the answer, that essentially is considered an error. So you can move on from that. Altered level of consciousness, I think it's pretty easy to score. And so if they are interacting the way that we would typically interact with any of our colleagues, then you would say that, yes, they've got a normal altered level of consciousness and that's it. But if there's any alteration from that, essentially they're, they're altered, whether it's that they're a little bit sleepier or they're a little bit more distracted, either hypo or hyper uh, levels of consciousness will constitute a positive score for that test. And then with disorganized thinking, sometimes when I'm asking the patient, I find it a little bit difficult because, and I preface it with, you might find some of these questions easy and, and some people find them hard because for patients that find them easy, sometimes, you know, they think, why are you asking me this silly question? And for patients that find them hard, they're a little bit embarrassed because they have a bit of insight to think I should really know this. And then they get very defensive. Um, and any incorrect answer or refusal to answer is considered positive. Those are great tips. And I have to reiterate that getting collateral is so important. And the sooner that you can call the facility that the patients came from, the better. Because if you wait more than 10 minutes, then no matter what, you're going to get somebody on the other line who says, oh, the person who was taking care of that patient, who knows that patient and sees them every day is no longer here. <laughs> I just met the patient, you know, two minutes ago. So calling as soon as possible to get that collateral information is so helpful. So now we've used the DTS to screen because we know Gestalt is just not good enough. And then we've used the BCAM to confirm, yes, they have delirium. Now what do we do? So we start with a thorough history and a physical exam to uncover those precipitating insults that we talked about. As you ladies mentioned, collateral history is of utmost importance. And then the other one is medication history. So whether they can tell you their medicines, have a list of the medicines or have a big bag full of medicines, including all of those over the counters, definitely take a look at that because your answer might just be in that big bag of pills. All patients must be fully undressed because sometimes for multitude of reasons, they may not tell you about that cellulitis patch or that abscess on their thigh or these medications that they forgot to tell you about in their other pocket. So definitely be as thorough as humanly possible with these patients. Now I have to put in a brief plug for the ADEPT tool, which is something that a group of us created in order to help the bedside physician, nurse practitioner, nurse who is dealing with a patient in front of them. And it's accessible at asap.org forward slash ADEPT, A-D-E-P-T. 
And it walks you through an evidence-based approach to delirium in which you assess, diagnose, evaluate, prevent, and treat. And so I'm not going to go through all of that here, but one of the questions that often comes up is, well, what testing should we do? Does everyone who's delirious need a full lab panel, a chest X-ray, a CT, total body MRI, and a lumbar puncture? Or how do we exactly, and I'm being facetious, but how do we tailor our workup while still casting a broad enough net, knowing that there are many, many different potential causes of delirium? So our diagnostic investigations really need to be guided by our comprehensive history and physical exam. Although it must be acknowledged that it's not uncommon that there often is no clear precipitant. And in those cases, we tend to take a little bit more of an empiric approach, ruling out common causes of delirium, such as infection. So typical delirium workup would include standard blood work, uh, including CBC, glucose electrolytes, extended electrolytes, renal and liver function tests, TSH, and an ECG. Now our infectious workup could include a chest X-ray, a urinalysis, and an LP if indicated clinically. Now, we could have a whole discussion about the interpretation and management of urinalysis in this patient population. It can be quite contentious. As we know that older adults, there's a very high prevalence of asymptomatic bacteriuria. However, urinary tract infections are a common cause of delirium. So it's a little bit of a catch-22. If the patient has urinary symptoms, it is much more clear-cut. However, in the presence of a positive urinalysis without symptoms, you really want to avoid premature closure and continue to look for another source of delirium. CT head is warranted in those with significant depression level of consciousness, new focal neurological deficits, history of head injury, fall, and to be considered in those patients that are anticoagulated. So you mentioned that checking the urine can be kind of a catch-22. And this is something we've talked about before that, yes, UTIs can cause delirium or urosepsis, but so many of our older patients have asymptomatic bacteriuria all the time. All that to say, I think we need to coin a new phrase, which is the clean catch 22. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> there's our, there's our phrase for the day. How our clean catch 22. have you been waiting? How long have you been it waiting? It was like 10 seconds. I was waiting while she was talking to bring that up. <laughs> Well, okay. So now Deb and Danya, we have diagnosed it. We've done a thorough history and physical. We've undressed them. We've gone through all their medications and potential changes. We've done a tailored yet reasonably comprehensive workup. How do we then treat these patients? How do we make their delirium get better or at least not make it worse? So it really depends on the cause. If they're having an infection, treat it. If they're dehydrated, give them fluids. If they're in pain, give them pain medicine. So treat the cause is your number one way to try to help it get better and prevent it from getting worse. But there's also a whole bunch of like non-pharmacological things that we can do to prevent that worsening of delirium. And to do this crazy, crazy concept, which we don't talk about enough in the emergency department, which is prevent a bad thing from happening. So if a patient comes in, without delirium, but they're predisposed, and we try to do some of this non-pharmacological stuff for them, then we'll be able to be preventing that delirium from even starting to begin with in our ED, and then hopefully also while they're in the, in the hospital admitted. So it's simple things like make sure the patient has their glasses and their hearing aids, decrease the noise. If it is daytime, then let them have light in the room. And if it's not daytime, then turn off the light in the room. 
allow people who are familiar to the patient to be at the bedside. So their family member, their loved one, their friend, their caregiver, someone. Have a clock that's actually visible and the correct time. Because I'm pretty sure that if anybody here practices in emergency departments like the ones I'm in, there's always that one random clock that's on some just like completely bizarre time. And it's not like it stops. Nope, it's working and keeps going. And you're like, wait, was I in that room for six hours? So please don't put that for a delirious patient because it's just even more confusing. If you're able to put in like a little whiteboard with like a, so that you can write the date on it or the name of the people who's with them, that would also serve as a frequent reminder. And then just try to make it as normal as possible for them in the ED. So if they're able to ambulate at home to go to the bathroom, then let them do that. Let them ambulate with supervision to toilet themselves if they can. If they take home medicines at a certain time and there's no medical contraindication for that, then let them. If it's time for them to eat, then let them. And given this logistical craziness that we've been in with people not being allowed or able to have their family at the bedside, then video recorded messages or video chats are the next best thing. It's interesting because there's been a lot of work done on preventing delirium in the inpatient setting. So Sharon Inouye's work at Yale, she's done a lot of work on identifying the most important risk factors and then creating kind of a package of targeted intervention strategies that includes a lot of the things you said, just monitoring their usual bodily behaviors, keeping them hydrated, managing pain, uh, access to bathrooms, vision management, and then avoiding tethers, restraints clearly are a serious tether, but then also things like IV poles, if they're not needed or monitors, if they're not needed or Foley catheters. And I think there's a growing awareness about this, but it's still something that we don't have quite yet for the ED of here's your delirium prevention package. And many of the things that were recommended in the inpatient from Sharon Inouye's and other people's work are certainly applicable in the ED. And many of those are on the ADEPT tool. But let's say that we do all the things that you mentioned, and it's really just not enough. The patient is continuing to escalate or having worsening delirium. What can we do when we're worried, particularly with hyperactive delirium, if we're worried about the patient's or staff's safety? Yeah, that's something that we do deal with, unfortunately, commonly in the ED. And when it comes to patient or, or clinician safety due to agitation, and we have exhausted our non-pharmacological options, then we really need to move to the next step, which is pharmacological management. But what I want to go over is that there are a couple of underlying principles that we need to keep in mind when we start reaching towards our medications. The first being that the goal is not sedation. Rather, it's to achieve a calm so that the patient is no longer distressed and not a risk to themselves or the others. Secondly, we need to select our medications thoughtfully. We should be aware that all antipsychotics have black box warnings in patients with dementia. Think about using medications that the patients are already on. Remember contraindications such as prolonged QT. Avoid dopamine blocking agents in patients with Parkinson's or Lewy body dementia. And the literature really preferentially chooses atypical antipsychotics such as olanzapine or risperidone over the typical antipsychotics. Third, we want to dose appropriately. This means giving medications orally if possible, and typically we use lower dosing in our older patients. It's important that we reassess frequently and we titrate our medications to the effect that we want to achieve. So those are the key things that I think that we need to think about when we have to 
advance or treatment to using medications? Well, we've covered a lot. And for those of you who, who are working in the, the ED, which is most of the listeners, and maybe not are who are not necessarily delirium researchers, we hope that this has given you a practical approach to how you can approach screening, identification, management of delirium. So Danya or Deborah, what are your take-home points for the patient that we see tomorrow who may have otherwise unrecognized delirium? Well, as you said, Christina, there is a lot of things that we can do better, but it's much, much simpler than it sounds. If we just think of the word delirium or acute brain failure, when we see our next older adult, we have done so much work. We have accomplished what we're trying to do today on this podcast. You are now thinking of acute brain failure in your older adult. Take a moment, screen this patient, especially if they're high risk, and pay attention to attention. If they're not paying attention to you, all right, well, maybe it's because you're a little boring, but most probably it's because they have underlying delirium. So take that moment, think about it, and ask yourself, does my patient have acute brain failure? If you've done that, then you have done so much better for this patient than you would have otherwise. Could have summarized it better. I like that. So pay attention to attention. Think about using the term acute brain failure because that just alerts us that, hey, this is an acute on chronic problem with end organ conditions, the organ being the brain. Use a tool like the ADEPT tool to go through systematically and think about what could be causing it, how to screen for it, how to diagnose it. Cast a broad net, but really first do a thorough history and physical and get that collateral from people who know the patient at baseline. Remember, there's the clean catch 22 that the urine does not hold all the answers to what you seek in life, but sometimes it does have the answer. So I personally think it's worth checking and then try to prevent as much as possible by normalizing the patient's bodily functions, fluid status, pain management, et cetera. And when needed for agitation and safety risks, be really thoughtful with those medications that you pick. Well, Deborah and Danya, thank you so much for being on GEMCAST. It's a pleasure to have you. And I look forward to talking with you again in the future. So thank you for having us. And thank you for giving us a chance to talk about something we're both very passionate about. I'm talking for you, Deb, sorry. But acute brain failure, definitely important for us as physicians and for our patients. So thank you for giving us a chance to talk about this. Thank you for listening to this episode of GEMcast. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at GEMpodcast. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients.